and welcome to Shine, a podcast by Star. And in this episode, we're going to be tackling the impact of COVID-19 on telehealth. Now, telehealth is an established trend in the world of healthcare, but of course has been accelerated by the virus, by the inability for patients to actually see a doctor in person. To help us understand this topic, we have a plethora of experts. First, we have Uzair Rashid, who's the Director of Innovation at Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts. We have Richard Windsor, the founder of Radio Free Mobile. We have Chris Landon, the CEO of Landon Pediatric Foundation. And we have our very own David Box, Managing Director of Health and Wellness here at STAR. So let's jump into the discussion. And the first thing we need to understand before we jump into the discussion is the backgrounds of our experts. So Chris, could you please share a little bit more about your back history and your current work? I think my interest has always been in this area. In 1969, I was at, uh, over summer, moved to chest X-ray, two kilobytes per second at a time from Alaska to Stanford Artificial Intelligence Center. So my whole life, I just uh, keep trying to find uh, partners, and they've been uh, JPL NASA, Technolink, the Intelligent Health Pavilion, uh, where I get to meet lots of uh, interesting people. Currently, well, we have a number of devices, uh, companies that I consult to and help start. Body Metrics, which does sleep studies at home, and we're pushing it down into children. With the United States Department of Agriculture, Distance Learning and Telemedicine, we have projects in American Samoa, Marianas Islands, uh, Eleven Health, an electronic colostomy bag. I'm on uh, faculty at the uh, University of Southern California, UCLA, and uh, I'm on uh, the Pediatric Pulmonology Faculty at Children's Hospital Los Angeles. Got it. Thank you, Chris. And now over to our very own David Box. Thanks, Tom. Yes, so I've been in the uh, digital health space for the greater part of the past 15 years, starting out in patient engagement and then slowly migrating into the digital space, where at STAR, I head up our health and wellness industry practice. You know, we're truly a team of digital health experts who are passionate about improving patient outcomes with digital products that are ultimately a pleasure to use. You know, we accomplish this by really working with our customers hand in hand to help them define what it is that they want to build, where they want to go, and how they're going to get there. And we translate the desired outcomes into experiences, and we help them create the products, the brands, and the services. We leverage our three core pillars of strategy, design, and engineering to help them achieve their marketing success. Now, we've had a lot of experience, and I've worked on multiple telehealth projects as well as remote patient monitoring projects throughout the years. At STAR, we've had a lot of success in building telehealth products for various different brands, as well as remote patient monitoring type products. And overall, applying technology solutions to help the space grow. Uzair, please give us the intro. My name is Uzair Rashid. I serve as a Director of Innovation at Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts, where I'm hyper-focused on generating both incremental and sort of around-the-bend blue-sky innovations that align with the strategic imperatives of our organization and our aim to delight our members and our consumers. Leading up to Blue Cross, I was heading innovation at CBS Health. I was specifically focused on post-merger integrations, patient care transformation, and reimagining the delivery of care. Prior to CBS, I've been a lifetime consultant 
I took the role of a managing principal at a large tech consultancy firm within their healthcare solutions vertical. In an early career, I ran a boutique tech consultancy group of my own. I've sort of been a historic advocate and executor for optimizing care delivery and having a lens of being sort of agnostic to geographic boundaries. And I firmly believe that virtual care as a topic is timely, relevant, and pivotal. So happy to be here and thanks for having me. Thank you, that? I'm the founder of Radio Free Mobile. So the company is an independent research provider that was set up in 2012. Prior to that, I was an investment analyst on Wall Street for 20 years, and I very much mixed financial analysis with industry type analysis, so giving us a good balance across the two disciplines. And the focus really has been around the digital ecosystem. Certainly in 2012, I got the impression that no one really understood what the digital ecosystem was in an easy to understand way. So we put together a research product that helped our clients to understand that properly. And that's kind of branched out into artificial intelligence, into automotive, a little bit in telehealth. But generally what we look at is the whole general move towards digitization, the strategies and what that means for all kinds of different industries. Amazing, Richard. Thanks so much. Now, I have the Google Trends result for the search term telehealth in front of me. And as you can imagine, mid-March there is a massive spike. What I'd like to hear from each of you is the state of telehealth pre the virus and what were the interesting use cases that you were aware of kind of before the virus happened so we'll, we'll start with chris well i've been working with the usda rural utility service distance learning telemedicine for about 30 some odd years we were the first blue cross telemedicine provider in california and i think back then it was that people in rural areas had no access to an orthopedic surgeon or a follow-up for a surgery they had they would have to travel uh, hundreds of miles and take time off the farm. That's how the USDA got involved. We then looked at vivometrics. Uh, this was a home sleep study. We had Dr. Dement, who literally invented study of sleep at Stanford uh, as uh, reading my sleep studies. We studied truck drivers and showed that the truck drivers had horrendous sleep, obstructive sleep apnea. We went to the union. The union said, well, we don't want to know that. But how about the accidents, accident prevention? So it's, it was back trying to push the economic case of time missed from work, uh, fewer accidents. It was a difficult. We've been at this a long time. I mean, COVID really made a difference. And so the infrastructure was in place. Now with Blue Cross, it was in the Medi-Cal, the Medicaid population, not having access to subspecialists. And dermatology was an easy target. So then uh, getting payment for all that getting payment for the lines, the lines themselves, ISDN lines, not very good at transmitting information. Now, again, we're in American Samoa, and we're working on a morphine use disorder with the public health department, with uh, teleconferencing and so forth. And all that was pre-COVID. So it's really making the world a smaller place. Our Vivometrics Life shirts back in the 19, I'll say 90s to be kind, uh, what's up on the International Space Station? We had, when it cost $15,000 now for 150 bucks in an iPhone, I can do the same thing we were doing then. It's advanced quite a bit, but the COVID made a big difference in terms of making a practical reality. Awesome. And then pre-COVID, were you aware of any interesting applications of telehealth? Pre-COVID, telehealth obviously had plenty of potential. We've been talking about it for years. Twofold, really. Number one, bringing health to people who are very remotely located from their nearest health provider. 
And secondly, really about reducing the overall healthcare cost. If you look at, you know, aging populations, lifestyle-related diseases, and so on and so forth, healthcare costs is becoming a major headache. So the two main benefits of telehealth have been, prior to COVID-19, exactly focused in these kind of areas. Got it. And now over to David. Well, I think the use cases and applications are pretty much the same pre and post. I think the difference between the two is that it's become, really overnight, it became part of the mainstream. But if we look at the use cases and application, I mean, it ranges, as Chris said, everything from providing greater access in rural areas to dermatology and people being able to be seen for simple skin conditions via video. Even looking at it in diabetes, there were lots of really novel innovations in diabetes around foot care with a scale that you could step on and it would take images of your feet and transmit that to a doctor. So telehealth isn't always in just the form that we think of it today, where you're sitting in front of a computer interacting with a physician. It could also take place in various different ways, one of which is just transmitting data through biometric data, through wearables and other type platforms to physicians to review and and manage your condition, if that's the case. So there's still a ton of innovation happening in the space. There's been a ton of innovation as technologies become cheaper and more accessible. Adoption will become greater. But at the same time, now in the era of COVID, it's really launched it into the mainstream literally overnight. And the regulatory concerns that we've had in the past around interacting with these devices have all been laxed and have really proven the efficacy of the technology. Got it. And then finally, is there thoughts on the state of telehealth pre-COVID-19? It's a great question. And I almost think you have to sort of look at the entire sort of healthcare landscape pre-COVID. And I think the narrative within healthcare at that time was sort of innovation at the speed of regulation. And it was a bit cumbersome with large health systems, enterprises, and even individuals getting drugged into this institutional inertia of this is how healthcare is delivered, this is how it's always been delivered, and sort of, please don't rock the boat. And on the flip side of that coin, consumers had been learning from exactly that, their consumer interactions, and they were learning to demand more from their healthcare system. And then COVID hit and regulations changed and said, you know, how how do we sort of deliver care and remove distance as a barrier to delivering care? You know, I recall in 2019, I was reading an amendment to the CMS guidelines where they introduced three new CPT codes for remote patient monitoring. And I thought to myself, my God, is this happening? Right? And it was really interesting. And during that same period of time and a few years earlier in my past life, I remember we were launching a virtual care program and, you know, I was sat in a room with a few medical directors and they had this allergic reaction to the thought of virtual care in thinking through the fact that, you know, or the opinion rather, that this is not the way that care is delivered and the human touch is so relevant and vital. And it is, but you know, you fast forward to today, and what I think has changed most in, in a current trend, the perception of telehealth from being this dangerous, opaque, blue sky thing to, you know, the technology exists and how do we best utilize it to improve access, to improve coordination, and certainly increase 
the transparency and cost as well. And so current interesting use cases, if I think of them post-COVID and during the times of COVID, have been a, you know, the real obvious adoption of virtual care from organizations going to the Amwells and Teledocs of the world and saying, you know, let's treat telemedicine as a benefit to provider organizations now growing this capability in-house and requiring providers to deliver care virtually. In addition to, and I think, you know, Chris, you pointed out really well, the Medicaid population. And this is a great opportunity because these folks are high risk, they're vulnerable, and they typically uh, have a high prevalence of chronic diseases and comorbidities associated with their chronic illnesses. And if you think about remote patient monitoring, if you think about virtual care holistically, these are easy, low-lift opportunities that are being executed on because of how highly protocolized they are. So there's certainly been an interesting sort of timeline of events. And if there is or was to be any silver lining within the COVID pandemic, it certainly is the fast-forwarding of innovation to where we are today. I really like the phrase, innovation at the speed of regulation. And that ties nicely into the next point about, yes, it seems like we've jumped forward half a decade or a decade in the past three months. But what are the roadblocks going to be to further adoption going forward? Uh, We'll start with David. So I think some of the roadblocks that we're facing today is, is more around uncertainty uncertainty of the regulatory stance and how things are going to ultimately play out from a regulatory perspective. So I think there's some concern there. And certainly I've seen that as a potential blocker for some people to invest a little more heavily into these technologies. I think an overall strong understanding of the distribution models and the money and how the money flows is another question that's weighing on people's minds. I, don't, I wouldn't call that necessarily a blocker as much as I just say it is weighing It is weighing heavily on people's decisions. Added to that, I think to some degree, standard of care needs to be addressed here as well. And those are all things that are going to ultimately lead to more products and services being delivered with uh, telehealth modalities and remote kind of patient monitoring modalities, if you will. Love it. And then what are the roadblocks to further adoption? Roadblocks now, I think, are the roadblocks that existed pre-COVID. I think one of the things that has changed during the epidemic is the requirement for or the, the problem with actually bringing people together for a consultation because of infectious regions has meant that inferior systems and inferior ways of doing things have become more acceptable just through necessity. So the roadblocks really remain the same. And these are, and I think what you will see as a result of the pandemic is that people are going to work on alleviating these roadblocks much more quickly than previously expected. And the two main roadblocks are obviously internet connectivity and the ability to actually have a consultation remotely. Secondly, the availability of the ability to do triage remotely. And that, you know, there are a number of solutions that are being brought forward that can help with that, particularly the kind of devices that a consumer can have that could perform as a stethoscope or measure blood pressure and so on and so forth. And lastly, and I think one of the most significant ones is the accuracy of the data that a lot of these consumer 
health type devices generate. This is the big issue at the moment because if one could start to improve the accuracy and the reliability, then you're looking at changing the whole way that health is monitored going forward. Sure. Is there, Chris, anything on the roadblocks to further adoption? I think up at Health Achieve up in Toronto, the uh, Ontario Health Network, and up there they have pilotitis. They have tons of money from Canada. They have so many rural things. Pharmacies have telehealth booths, but they don't follow through. So these programs have to be in place. They have to have a steady, steady source of income. We're doing this with cystic fibrosis. We have 130 different cystic fibrosis centers. And as we stand back, Virginia is talking about not paying for telehealth these kinds of visits. We're seeing 99215 maximum consults being a three-minute telephone call. So I think there's going to be some impact from insurance and be able to follow the amount of time in the electronic healthcare records so that you, you can really document the evaluation management. But I break it into three buckets, and that is clinical, financial, and operational. And putting this into place, the operational was tough. We've tried DoxyMe, Zoom, GoToMeeting, Spruce, uh, a number of different uh, uh, in touch. And if there's if the connectivity isn't there, staff hate it. If you try and put uh, more than two providers on a call, if you can't share an x-ray, you can't share something with the patient. So the, the operational parts have to be smooth. And that's, that's I think, we'll see with innovation. Clinical parts, we don't know. We right now with my cystic fibrosis patients, I do remote monitoring with remote with uh, scale, uh, with a spirometer, and I have home sleep testing. Uh, I can do six-minute walk tests. All these things are technologies now I can follow from 200 miles away. But my patients who I go, oh, what a great advantage. You get to see eight team members by telehealth, and we can hear each other. Uh, they go, I don't know. We really want to come drive and see you. So they're clinical, financial, as we've spoken. Work very hard with Vivometrics uh, with our life shirt. We could do home sleep studies. Oh my God, the head of the inventor of sleep medicine. And uh, Medicare refused to pay for home sleep testing. Finally, after a lot of about 10 years into the company, I think we were on our verge of bankruptcy by then. We got bought by, I think it was Adidas. They came through. And now a home sleep center was $1,500. I could do it for $600. I could pay everybody, the equipment, everything wonderfully. And they said $274 for a home sleep test. Now, through Kaiser, we're doing home sleep testing with the body metrics ring. This is a, it's a $300 ring. They're buying them. Not a problem. I've got a great portal. Uh, we have good uh, HIPAA regulation. So all those have to squish together, the clinical, the financial, the operational, what are the long-term clinical implications? Do we get better care? And following, it's going to be very important. And just to sort of add to that, from a roadblock perspective, I always like to position my thinking in the, the mind of the patient and center our transformation on that. And so if I think about it from a patient perspective, that's leveraging telehealth or virtual care modality. It's really about, the roadblock is really about changing their perception of virtual care, telehealth, from being, you know, this is for low acuity when I already know what's wrong with me and need to negotiate for some antibiotics, to can I actually leverage and trust telehealth when I might not know what's wrong with me? And can I trust its efficacy and its accuracy as well? Then at the, you know, just drawing down that line a little bit, I think about the disparities and equity within telehealth as well. There's requirements to leverage this technology. One is typically having a strong broadband connection. And you think about low-income populations and demographics, you think about 
folks that are in broadband deserts and primary care deserts. And, you know, it sort of becomes this disparity in receiving care remotely. And, you know, I think it's a responsibility of the health system and of, you know, even insurers to make sure as we launch programs that we take this, you know, sort of equity and disparity into mind when we launch our virtual care programs. You did just touch upon some IoT devices to enable kind of remote monitoring. Do you have any other examples of those that are like live today that healthcare providers are using? Yes. Now, where we are with consumer IoT devices today is that they can be used as a broad indicator and nothing more. The best example out there is the ECG function that's available on the Apple Watch. That can be used as a you should call your doctor and go get a proper examination done. And there have been some examples of where that has actually proved to be an early recognition of a condition and it has been successfully treated. The caveat there, of course, is that's, of course, Apple's marketing. So the number and false positives is not yet known, but that's kind of where we are today. So, you know, a consumer risk-mounted watch of some description for just general monitoring of health and fitness. That's really where it is today. These are moderately successful, but because they aren't particularly reliable or even the user experience is not that great, they tend to suffer from what we call the desk drawer syndrome, which is they end up in a desk drawer fairly quickly. So really what I'm looking for in terms of what would be really interesting is a consumer price device that can measure non-invasively things like blood pressure and blood glucose. These, for me, are, are the two holy grail biometrics to get a handle on. When do you think that would happen, If, like in the next five years? I have no idea. I keep tabs on a number of different companies who claim to be able to go in this direction. But as of today, what happens is, is they say, yeah, you know, we've got this product, and then they come into some... They, get remote blocks. It's just taking a bit longer than expected. However, from what I've seen in the last 12 months, I would be reasonably hopeful there should be something pretty good out there within five years, I would hope. Got it. And what role would the insurers pay? Would you think they would be expected to start to cover some of these devices? I don't think they would be necessarily expected to cover these devices. I think they would be more along the point of view of, hang on a minute, if we get the consumer to wear these kinds of devices, our costs and the claims are going to be made against us to meet healthcare costs could be drastically reduced. So frankly, we ought to give the things away and actually incentivize the consumers to use them. So, you know, one of the things I think could be very interesting is you have an accurate wrist-mounted device that is non-invasive and can monitor over a period of time, blood pressure, blood glucose, and so on and so forth. It would be very much in the interest of the insurance company to say, hey, we're going to take a big chunk off your premium because we know that with the early warning that this monitoring gives us, to us, you're going to become a much, much lower cost. And so we can incentivize you by passing some of that saving back to you. Kind of like, I think Vitality do that with the Apple Watch. Are you aware of that? Yes, but it's not, to some degree, yes, but the take-up of it is still going to be very low. I mean, the Apple Watch is an expensive aspirational device that gives best indication data only, and it tells you when you should call your physician. But from a point of view of something much more widespread, much more widely available, I think what we need to see is 
accurate sensors done at consumer levels of cost. Chris, I know you mentioned a couple of these already, but the, could you share just a couple of interesting examples? And I'd also like to go to Azair for his insight on the insurer's take. Should the insurers start to pay for these? But we'll start with Chris and some examples, please. It's hospital readmission post-colostomy uh, was uh, an area of interest. Uh, we had a patient uh, who had a, a total intestinal transplant, uh, uh, Michael Series, who was mad as anything, took his wee glove that he was punching away at, smelled his own feces, and said, why didn't the nurses tell me to change my colostomy after lunch? So he took that, those fingers, put it on his bag, so he started getting early warning the bag was start to, starting to fill. I met Michael at uh, the Intelligent Health Pavilion several years ago, and we advanced the engineering uh, so that we now have uh, heat-sensing wires. I have sensors for chemicals, for gas, uh, and I can tell you 24, 48 hours before someone is uh, going to have an episode that will put them back in the hospital. So there are sensors. We work with Avnet. They're up-to-date where we can really get somewhere. With uh, Bluetooth, I put Bluetooth in everything. We have devices for airway clearance in, in cystic fibrosis. I know if someone is using my $15,000 device at home to move their mucus. I put it in, we have a medication cost $6,000 a month. Uh, Pari has an eFlow. We put the Bluetooth in the eFlow. And my patient who uh, at a conference I was giving said, I said, oh, great, you know, I'm here with 30 doctors. Now, Kristen, you're using the, the case in the way you're supposed to three times a day, 30 days on, or it takes three minutes. We work like crazy to get the time down. And she said, I use it on Friday if I have a date and I'm coughing. I go, well, no, that's not a... So I'd spent 18 months putting the Bluetooth in there. And uh, then we put in hers and 30 other patients' homes. And sure enough, she used it only on Friday. She knew that I could look inside her life. And that, that's what the patients are doing, is they're inviting inside of your life. And if I look in her window at night, she'll call the police, I have to wear an ankle bracelet again. By using the human touch, so we've got the tech, we used counseling. And, oh gosh, Kristen, you know, could use it twice a day and then three times. So we got her to great five days a week. It took a month. When I went to Walmart and I said, gosh, wouldn't it be great? You can use, a pharmacist can use their knowledge. They can have information no, no, it's not something we're, we're interested in. Now, that was whatever, probably six, seven years ago, I think. Interest may be back. We're using, I don't know how many secrets to give away. I have a, a concept called Gecko, which is we gamify what they do. We educate them. We communicate doctor to patient. We give the doctor knowledge about up-to-date protocols. We order, and we put it up in a, in a registry. And by combining all those and, and finally... I have a company that I'm talking to this week. There's an interest because when you start not taking a $300,000 a year medication, gosh, if you can even get them to take, you know, 30 more pills, you know, there's another $60,000 that uh, can be done. So, so I think the area of adherence uh, for the patient, but you have to make, you have to put a leaderboard in there. You have to give them a reward. You have to, we have a device from a company that was, it took me 26 pictures to show this elderly patient how to use this device they use uh, once a day. So you have to educate people as well. And then the whole clinical outcome, that's registry dependent. How are they doing? What, what's happening? So for chronic diseases like cystic fibrosis or multiple sclerosis, or that's where we're going. And I'm on to the next. Got it. Thank you for that, Chris. Is that the insurer's perspective? At what point should the insurer start to cover consumer telehealth devices? I think just before hopping into that, I'd love to comment and add to what Chris was saying, because I think it's 
there are so many interesting use cases around IoT devices. And, you know, I, I think of continuous glucose monitors. I think of sort of high-fidelity ECGs that can transmit data to their cardiologists for overreads. And one aspect of this, and I just want to call out, is the proactive aspects of care intervention. So like being able to coalesce real-time transactional data from a human and coalesce that against historical prescription claims data, historical treatment data, and have this sort of holistic lens on a patient to proactively intervene before an event occurs and engage a patient proactively and in a meaningful way that's compelling to them is I think what IoT and remote patient monitoring is really all about. And the downstream effects are reduced costs, ER diversion, readmission reduction, and as Chris really eloquently pointed out, adherence uptake, which is all beautiful things. And for me, you know, I'm not going to even touch on reimbursement. That's a sticky topic. But what I can say is that being in healthcare, we're all in an industry of delivering a service. And if we think about it from that mindset, you know, at the highest level, we all have an obligation to do and implement things that improve lives from a health perspective. And so if that is a digital solution, if that is a remote patient monitoring device, then I think we all ought to think about how to get this in the hands of patients. But David, you mentioned earlier, it's about regulation. It's also about proving that this is equal to or better from an efficacy standpoint from the standard of care. And that becomes an iffy situation because if you were at CS earlier this year or last year, if you were at Health, if you were at HEMS, every booth you go to, every hallway you go in, you're hearing, you know, AI this, ML that, this is going to transform and change healthcare completely. And it's sort of really fishing out, A, which one of these technologies actually work right? And which one of them actually improves lives and which of them actually sort of match up to the standard of care and reduce costs. Then what are the core benefits both for the patient and the clinician? Well, I mean, there's, there's three main benefits, which is the first I mean, and the biggest one of all is obviously for the patient, which is preventative medicine often and almost always has better outcomes than curative medicine, i.e. stitching time saves nine. You know, if you catch something early, you're going to have a much better outcome than if you have a serious episode, and that's what takes you to the emergency room for the first time. That's one benefit, mainly for the patient, of course. The other one's for everybody, which is lower cost. You know, if you're catching things early, preventative medicine, again, much, much cheaper than curative medicine. And also, you know, for many, you know, a large percentage of healthcare costs are lifestyle related. And if you can incentivize people to live healthier lives, then the overall healthcare cost for everybody comes down. And from a clinician's point of view, what you get the benefit of, you get better data. So, you know, if the patient is using one of your devices, you're monitoring the patient over a long period of time when the patient is both symptomatic and asymptomatic and in many cases that will give you a much better indication of severity of the problem what the problem is easier diagnosis than just count making measurements when the patient turns up and actually presents the symptoms david any thoughts here certainly so look to chris's and user's point there's a lot of really interesting tech out there we're seeing new things 
come on the marketplace daily. And products that are really helping the patient, I can think of some kind of remote diagnostics type products that are used in conjunction with telehealth, where now you can help the physician hear a heartbeat with a digital stethoscope, a Bluetooth-connected stethoscope, with a device to look into the patient's ears, especially for children. When you've got parents that are in today's world, you have two working parents that it's difficult sometimes for them to get a child to the doctor. And if they can cut out an hour out of that process by going onto a remote connection and being able to show the doctor the inside of the child's ear. That is certainly a huge benefit to the patients. And it also enables the physician to ultimately grow their practice through the acquisition of more and more clients because now they're not bound to specific geographies. So I think we're seeing a, a lot of benefit on both sides with this. We're seeing a lot of really innovative products and services come to market. We've fortunately been involved in building a few of them, which has has certainly opened our eyes to the possibilities and gets us continually thinking about, hey, you know, what can we do better? How can we make these these products and services better? And how can we ultimately guide and direct our customers in the creation of these products? So really innovation is running rampant in this space. And again, to Azir's point, the question just is, is you know, what's the ground truth going to be? And what within this ecosystem of products is aspirational today? And, and what's real? And what can we truly build businesses around and have be profitable? Because at the end of the day, while the delivery of the healthcare service to the patient is paramount, it still is a business. And without the flow of funds, people aren't going to survive these businesses, right? Let me add just a couple things. And the financial barrier, that $25 copay for my Medicare patients, they won't get the scale. I mean, and the doctor is having to invest in the devices themselves, and then they slowly get paid back over six months. The financial is very important. In terms of the stethoscope, I started with JPL NASA with Dr. Asha Talukter in 1992. Uh, and now Johns Hopkins, we have an AI self-diagnosing stethoscope we've used it in Nepal. And they're trying to make a business out of these little innovation things. They're used to, you know, getting their $70,000 startup thing. Oh, they're all excited. When we went to Sequoia Capital to look for money for the electronic colostomy bag, they go, well, Dr. Lynn, in terms of the business case, the insurance companies don't care. In fact, the people who really don't care are the hospitals. They want patients in the bed. They want those patients back in 30 days until CMS and everyone else says, oh, no, that's an important part. When we look just at COPD, we made tremendous advances in terms of education to prevent those readmissions for COPD, for chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. And then what we found is that they set this 30-day clock and we had more heart attacks. The nursing home was so, oh, no, 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 wait till two more days, uh, chest pain. It might have been related to that previous hospitalization. So the insurance companies have to figure this out from a financial standpoint as well as the clinical and operational. Sure. I just want to highlight one of their fluff points because this is, seems like pretty like the primary benefit of this whole telehealth thing is that when you are able to monitor remote signs from patients, you can back check that data against existing patient databases, and then you can come back and proactively outreach, right? It, that's like the core benefit we're talking about, for sure. So that seems to me like an insanely great benefit for the patient. I would also like to ask you guys, what are the benefits here for the clinicians, so the other side, the people delivering that service? How can telehealth help them and their businesses? So we'll, we'll kick off with David. So to my point earlier, 
they, with telehealth, they're not bound to a specific geography, right? So they can broaden their reach from a, from a practice perspective and they can see patients in other parts of the country that they otherwise wouldn't have access to. So that's one of the benefits from a patient's perspective and from a clinician's perspective in, in, the t- in terms of care delivery. You know, take diabetes, type 2 diabetes, for example. This is a, an illness that people consume a very large portion of their day and their lives with in ensuring that they're in compliance and, and that their blood sugar levels are where they need to be. Yet they have very little face time with a physician that can actually help them ensure that they're leading a healthy life or going toward the path of being in compliance with where they need to be. So telehealth and remote monitoring kinds of platforms and products really, in a way, give them more exposure to their physician, where a standard uh, patient would spend about 1% of their, of their lifespan in front of a clinician. Using some of these data capturing tools and platforms, they're able to increase that, that percentage significantly because the physician is able to monitor their progress and intervene when, when an intervention is necessary. So I think those are kind of two major benefits that, that we're seeing out of this. Is that all, Chris? Yeah, just to add to that, I think it's our goal always within healthcare to push providers and enable providers and empower providers to operate at the top of their licensure and their education. And when you can leverage key technology enablers to take away those low acuity things that may be a virtual private health assistant or a coordination bot can handle, and you can offload those cumbersome things that add to resource contention and vocational-led burnout for a provider and have them focus on what they're trained to do and what they're so good at is delivering high-quality, medium-to-high-acuity care, then I think we're in sort of a, you know, a very compelling place. Certainly, you know, David, just to add to the geography aspects to the, the benefits of delivering care from a clinician perspective, today there exists credentialing regulations where a physician has to be credentialed in a geography to deliver care to patients. So as an example, you're credentialed in Texas, then you deliver care in Texas, whether it's virtual or in person. And I think, you know, a benefit over time may be, and we've seen this in COVID as sort of a a laxed perspective on these geographic boundaries to allow physicians and providers to deliver care outside of those, you know, invisible lines. I think that becomes incredibly compelling as well, because if you think about where we are today with COVID, the health system and providers and patients were challenged in receiving and delivering care when they're not able to enter into the brick and mortar of a health system. Like you just can't do it. So, but people do need care. And That's an obvious benefit for clinicians in the sense that they're able to deliver care, maybe even in times of natural disasters, be it a hurricane, be it a tornado situation, be it, you know, a national lockdown secondary to a looming pandemic. So that's really exciting to keep, you know, business flowing and patients healthy. Last bit I'll add is sort of the last thing we want for clinicians by Introducing remote patient monitoring devices, connected devices, wearables, what have you, is to get data fatigue. And so a clear benefit is if we're able to aggregate that data 
synthesize and cleanse it and integrate it in a meaningful, compelling way into a provider's existing workflow. And I think we're getting there. That's also a clear, clear benefit for a clinician. And I'm not a provider. I just have a very healthy envy for them and their impact. So Chris, I'll lean on you to validate or disvalidate what I've said. <laughs> Going up to Canada to Health Achieve, you know, where they have just all this money for all these great pilot projects that end up not being put into place on a permanent basis. Dr. Ed Brown has said, uh, Dr. Lynn, I want to introduce you to some of my family practitioners. You brought Ideal Life uh, to Canada, and now we have blood pressure uh, measurements for almost everybody. And to a one, they go, we hate you. We don't want to look at 300 blood pressures every Monday morning. And we don't want to be responsible if we miss something. So we put filters in place. You know, did you start medication last 30 days? Uh, systolic blood pressure over 160. So we have, in terms of the data fatigue, yeah, people shut down. It's like alarm fatigue in the intensive care unit. We always have these alarms going off. We're building a ventilator for low-income countries and it'll probably be used in, in COVID. And you have to turn that alarm off and turn it to a light. So it's still, it's still there, but some people just don't, don't burn out. My doctors right now are dying across, the, not dying, but they, well, they are literally dying in Italy. We killed off most of the elderly doctors there with putting them back to work. But their, their practices are just destroyed. I mean, they're just, there's, they need those visits. People are not coming in. They have no elective surgeries. Uh, so for medical practices, this COVID thing is just terrible. And uh, the other thing I worry about is, you know, the teledocs or whatever I want, is they have no access to the electronic healthcare record. So they, the patients, oh, gosh, I have Blue Cross insurance. I'll just make that up. But it's now you have access to Teladoc for $30 copay. Now you have access to them. Oh, my child has an ear infection. It's 3 in the morning. Do they look in the ears? No. They go, oh, hi, here's some amoxicillin. Here's a 24-hour pharmacy. Goodbye. Oh, oh, were you allergic to penicillin? You didn't know amoxicillin was penicillin? Oh, your child has been missing immunizations, all that background information. So these tellies, they have to have access to that complete healthcare record to succeed, I think. Cool. Now, final question. I'd like to look to the future. What do each of you think are the most exciting applications that we'll see in the next between one and five years? And we'll start with Chris. Well, the chip, of course, you know, Bill Gates is going to put a chip in all of us, but we've seen all the, all these technologies become smaller and smaller. You know, Google with their continuous glucose monitoring through a contact lens, smart toilets, out of Stanford and out of Italy, you talked about the smart scale. Uh, and that's looking for melanomas too. It's not just for, for diabetes care. So I think it is the, the internet of things where we really can. It's making that technology, it is more affordable. There's no doubt about it. But to patients, you know, we, people won't wear their blank, blank masks. You know, are they going to want to have that Bill Gates chip in them? Uh, you know, what, what's the pushback going to be for, oh my God, you're looking at my feet. Get out of my bathroom. So it's going to be consumer education as well and showing clinical benefits. You know, when people get their 23andMe and they're so, oh my gosh, look, you're, it's an increased incidence. Oh, you were part of the Habsburgs, whatever. You're going to have Alzheimer's when you're 98 years old. Oh my gosh, I worry about that now. So there's a dangerous beast that's, that's been unleashed as well. So having the consumer gamify it, educate them, communicate with their physicians, knowledge, ordering, organization. Uh, and something you can put in your hand. We're working with Cleveland Clinic on on a project, and they go, oh, well, we'll have to exclude everybody who doesn't have a smartphone. Well, oh, well, gosh, why don't we just exclude all women or at least exclude all the team? It, you know, so it has to be 
be affordable. And there is a program through the United States government that used to be 3G and text only. Now you can get a full 4G phone with a supported program. So that, that's going to be an important piece as well. And over to you, David. So, you know, obviously the IoT component of remote healthcare, let's just call it in general, is huge. And there are tons of innovation happening there. Lots of new products and services coming out, like Chris mentioned, with the smart toilets and smart scales and other devices to read biometrics. We're seeing things come out of MIT right now where they're using Wi-Fi to measure biometrics without a wearable, right? Passive sensors to measure different things. There are products out in the market today already that are using voice biomarkers to understand mental health, to understand cardiac conditions and, and so forth. So tons of, of really interesting and exciting technology that's, that's being developed on that front. For me, where I see a lot of benefit and I get very excited about is the aging in place kind of scenario and, and the aging population. Globally, we have an aging population crisis, I'd, I'd almost say, where the infrastructure just isn't going to, to be there to facilitate and, and to, to care for the aging population. Using these types of technologies are, un, are aimed at unclogging our, our ERs globally. They're aimed at helping people in general, uh, the elderly as well as younger patients, manage their symptoms, understand their symptoms, get the help that they need in their homes, and then certainly have that uh, the hospitals and, and the physicians' clinics and, and offices in the instances where they need to be seen face-to-face. But the hopes are that this will start to bring better healthcare in the home, reduce the, the drag on the overall system, and give people the ability to get that quality care on a daily basis. Got it. Cool. And then uh, I think you have actually already mentioned one of the, the future kind of milestones and applications of telehealth that you're most excited about. There are three. Uh, the first one is the ability to do properly do remote consultations. And, you know, and there are a number of devices out there uh, MedWand is one that I'm aware of that allows the doctor to actually do a proper diagnosis and a proper examination remotely. I think that's about a two, $300 device. The ones that really interest me most of all are the kinds of devices that can accurately measure blood pressure and blood glucose. The reason being is the both of these two signs give you indications on conditions that kill millions and millions of people across the world every day and you know part of the reason a it's you know overall better quality and better health of life for the patient but overall if you think of it from an economic perspective and an investment perspective this is a massive opportunity to make a very large return on investment by perfecting a sensor that can accurately measure both blood pressure and or blood glucose and as you said before you think that's about five years away I think a device is in the market at scale. Yes, it could be around about five years away. However, you know, necessity is the mother of all inventions. So quite possibly, you know, the degree of investment now following the pandemic gets ramped up. And so potentially these things might be developed a bit more quickly. But, you know, given the false starts that I've seen over the last six years, I think I, I would hope for five years. And finally, over to you, Azair. Sure. I think from an impact perspective, it's improved health outcomes, it's improved access, it's reduced cost, especially as, you know, the the cost of devices or connected devices goes down. 
as 5G technology improves and we notice that you know, we have access and capability to virtual care at a broader reach nationally. And then when I think of future applications that really sort of get me excited, it's about digital therapeutics. It's about, you know, this new concept of software as medical devices and being prescribable software. It's like the silver cloud healths of the world. You know, and this may be sort of blue sky here, but I see a world where, and this really gets me excited, where sort of virtual private health assistants exist. And these are sort of AI-powered bots that are conversational with a patient and handle, you know, things like scheduling, things like coordination and things like low acuity care. And I can see a world where, and not to delve too deep into this, where these virtual private health assistants are actually licensed by a state medical board. Maybe fatally idealistic, but I see a world where that exists and it really gets me excited. And, you know, it may take more than more time than we have in this conversation, but I would urge everyone to take a quick Google of VPHA and just sort of read up on it because it is compelling and really interesting to read up on. Okay, so we've gone from putting Bluetooth and everything to software diagnosis and virtual private assistance. All of you, thank you so much for your contributions. And a massive thank you to all of our guests. That's Chris, Uzair, Richard, and David. And also a massive thank you to you for listening. If you did enjoy the episode or have any feedback, please give us a rating and a review in your favorite podcast listening application. And we'll see you in the next episode where we will illuminate another area of cutting edge technology. Thank you so much for listening.